Well, welcome today again to Graceway Baptist Church in our Sunday School Hour. And uh, as we get ready to go into the month of September, we uh, are going to be looking again at Galatians, and we're going to kind of see Paul changing his argument just a little bit. And um, he, he shows a little bit more tenderness and compassion and kind of appealing to the Galatians uh, more as, a, I don't know, a friend, as a brother, as a father, uh, those type of things. And um, as he is uh, doing this, as we go to chapter 4, verses 8 through 10, uh, you, you kind of see him making an argument that he's concerned about them and he's concerned about their uh, spiritual life. And in order to really kind of grasp what he is saying or where he's going, I want you to think about this. The Old Testament law was not just simply one big block of rules and regulations. Now, uh, granted, the uh, Jews, particularly the Pharisees, they sort of took laws and they expanded them. If there was one uh, that said, um, you know, do, do not uh, uh, be unclean, for example, then they came up with 30 different ways uh, in which you were supposed to, you know, maybe wash your hands or, or feed or bathe or something like that. Things that were not actually in the original law but they were kind of added. It was a burdensome thing. They kept coming up with more and more and more and more. And that's why Jesus contended with them so much because uh, he said that they were teaching the traditions of men as the commandments of God. This, this was the problem. And uh, I, I guess the motivation for all of that is that it made them look more meticulous, more holy, and uh, we're really paying attention to the details. And then it was the kind of thing that the common person who didn't, uh, we'll put it this way, make their living in the temple and uh, doing this, well, they, they couldn't keep up with all of this. And there was always something new. They were always trying to learn and figure out what, what's the new rule this week? What's the new thing that the Pharisee, the rabbi, is going to bring out this week? And uh, so it just got bigger and bigger and bigger and heavier and heavier and heavier. And again, I refer you back to the Jerusalem Council where um, the apostles came to the conclusion, why are we trying to put on the Gentiles what we could not handle ourselves, what we could not keep up with ourselves and neither could our fathers. Now, for us, since we're not Jews, to understand this, we need to think about the law of God as being uh, in, in three things. There's, of course, the moral law that's reflected in the Ten Commandments. And I don't care where you live or who you are, thou shalt not kill is still thou shalt not kill, meaning murder and those type of things. And uh, so that's the moral law of God. Those standards don't change. And then there is the uh, civil law, because a lot of what you find that Moses gave was about taxation, uh, kind of a modified welfare program for widows and orphans and other people like that. And uh, that only applied to national Israel. It doesn't apply anywhere else. 
that was their rules for their govern, governance of their own nation. So there was the civil, uh, the moral, the civil, and then there was also the ceremonial law. And this is where things got really uh, kind of tangled up. There were certain rituals in the Jewish law that had to do with uh, ceremonial things. They weren't necessarily moral. They were just simply the rituals that pointed to Christ and the ultimate fulfillment. For example, every year we watch the uh, Christ and the Passover thing. You'll notice in there that as they do that, the Passover was not necessarily this moral thing like adultery and murder and stealing in the Ten Commandments or honoring parents. Uh, this was a ceremonial thing. Do this, do it this way, do it at this time. And as we see, it all pointed to the fulfillment of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when we look at the law, we know that the moral law would still be in effect. In effect. Everything in the moral law of God is reiterated in the New Testament, even for Christians. Whether you're a Jew or whether you're a 21st century Christian, it's wrong to murder, it's wrong to commit adultery, it's wrong to steal, it's wrong to use the Lord's name in vain. It's, you know, all of those kind of things. When we look and think about the civil law, well, we live in America, we don't live in Israel, so uh, there are no laws binding on us like there would have been on the ancient Israelis. We have to pay taxes according to what the IRS has to say, and we uh, function in that realm. And then in terms of the ceremonial law, that was completely uh, fulfilled when Christ came and when he lived his perfect life and when he died on the cross and rose from the dead. There's no need to repeat any of those because we don't just have the ceremony, we have the real thing, redemption through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the Gentiles in Galatia would have no way of knowing that. So when the uh, Judaizers came and they said, and remember the big issue, of course, was circumcision. And uh, they say, you've got to be marked off on your physical body as a Jew through this surgical process. Well, the Galatians would have no way of knowing that was the ceremonial part of the law that was fulfilled in Christ. And uh, so they fell for it and they learned how to uh, perform in that area and to kind of go back into the legalism of Judaism, not the moral part, and certainly the civil part wouldn't apply to them because they didn't live in Israel and Israel was occupied by Rome anyway. So there was a lot of that that even they couldn't do. And so they got tangled up into the more ceremonial parts uh, of the law that had been fulfilled and were no longer uh, carried over as binding onto uh, the, uh, the believers, especially the um, Gentile believers. Remember what the apostle said about that. And so um, what was happening is this is taking their focus off of Christ and it was spotlighting their human performance. I did this ritual and therefore I can be right with God and, and God has to accept me because I have done these things. Well, uh, think about the old 
Rock of Ages hymn that says, not the labors of my hands could fulfill the law's demand. None for sin could yet atone. Thou must save and thou alone. Okay? And uh, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. That's the spirit of the New Testament, and that's what we're being taught here in Galatians. And anything that takes away from that really takes away from the cross, it takes away from Christ, and it takes away from grace. It really is that simple. Anytime you add something to the gospel, you actually take away from what Christ did and put the emphasis on what you do. And the devil loves to do that, and legalists love to do that, and it exalts man and exalts the pride of man and takes away from what Christ has done. So let's start reading in chapter 4, verse 8. But then indeed, when you did not know God, you served those which by nature were not gods, the idols. Verse 9. But now after you have known God, or rather are known by God, that's pretty important, isn't it? How is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly, that means impoverished elements, to which... Uh, you desire again to be in bondage. You observe days and months and seasons and years, all of that ceremonial stuff. Nothing wrong with it unless you try to do it for salvation, right? Verse 11, I am afraid for you, lest I have labored for you in vain. In other words, Paul said, everything I've preached, everything I've taught, it just evaporates and it becomes empty like popping a soap bubble as we've said before. So number one, we want to look at this, where God found them. And it says in verse 8 that you did not know God, so you were ignorant about that. And think about the way Gentiles worshipped in the ancient Roman Empire. Think about the gods and the goddesses they worshipped. Think about the horrible things that they did. Uh, there was a lot of bloodshed. There was murder involved in it that was uh, uh, sanctioned by the, by the temple or the religion. There was religious prostitution. There was homosexuality. There was pedophilia. I mean, all kinds of things. If you think we have it bad now, you haven't seen anything until you go back and study about Greek and Rome, the Greco-Roman era that they find in here. That's where the Galatians, that's where they uh, were raised up. That was normal to them. That was something that they had all participated in, and it was done because they did not know God. And Paul says, you served those who were by nature not gods. Now, the bullet points underneath here, we need to remember lost people can be religious. You can be very religious and lost at the same time. A lot of religious people go to hell for eternity. And a lot of religious people get saved and are actually born again out of that religion. Religion cannot save. And so these Galatian believers, very religious all of their lives. But Paul says that the gods, quote unquote, that you are serving are not really gods. So those who are lost are serving demons, whether they are idolaters or not. When we think about um, where we were before we met Christ, because this is true of us as well, the Bible says 
that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, if we think about Ephesians 2, and we were carried away by all of this stuff that was in our minds and in our hearts, kind of like a log floating down a river, just carried along by all of that. And it uh, says that we were not serving God, but we were serving the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience. In other words, the world is demon possessed. And so were we before we were saved, even if we were religious, even if we were moral, even if we were nice people and all of that. The only thing that energizes a dead sinner is the power of the enemy, the power of demons. That's hard to take. And that's hard to think about when it's somebody that we love, somebody in our family, somebody in our neighborhood. But I didn't say that. Read Ephesians 2. That's what it says. But further clarification we find in 1 Corinthians 10, 20. It says, rather that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. So that's how clear it is. Why is it that somebody would spend their time, their money, and give their allegiance to a chunk of uh, stone or concrete or wood? It's because the power in that is not in the wood or the concrete or the stone. It's the demons who inspire that and they energize all of that. And there's enough to it that the sinner thinks that this is real. There's something to all of this. And so uh, Paul says, let's get clear about this. You're not worshiping God. You're not worshiping a deity at all. You're actually worshiping and sacrificing uh, to demons. And that's why it's dangerous for Christians to get involved in any kind of idolatry or pagan religion or try to mix any of that with Christianity because you end up having fellowship with demons, Paul says. Okay, number two. Well, what changed? As we look at verse nine, it says, but now after you have known God, here's the deal. They didn't know God. One God was as good as another. One religion was as good as another. Take whatever you want, like a cafeteria style thing out of this one and out of this one and out of this. It doesn't matter. They're all the same. They're all just, have you ever heard this? We have just different names for the same God or different ways to approach God. Jesus made it real clear. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. There's only one way to God. And boy, does that ever make people upset and make them mad whenever you say something like that. But it's the truth. And um, so the Gentiles here, the Galatians, he said, but now you've known God. And then he kind of clarifies it. And he says this, or rather are known by God. Now, one commentator I looked at said that Paul is writing something and he says, now that you know God, and then he goes, oh, wait a minute, rather it goes this way, uh, insinuating that Paul kind of made a mistake. Now, I'm going to say this. I don't think he made a mistake. I think both things are true. I know God and God knows me. I think what Paul is wanting to make sure we don't let slip is, why is it that we know God? Is it because we're smarter than other people? Is it because we're better than other people? No, it's the sovereign grace of God, remember? And election and those things 
remind us of why we came to God. We were drawn to God and he redeemed us. It's not that we're better than, it, it ought to humble us instead of make us strut, right? So both things are true. It's like I've heard some Calvinists say, you didn't decide to follow Jesus. And I would argue, well, yeah, I did. The issue is not whether I did or not. The issue is why did I want Jesus? Because when I got saved, I don't know about you, but I wanted to be saved. I wanted Jesus. I wanted eternal life. I wanted to be forgiven of my sins more than anything else in the world. Now, the question is, why me and why not somebody else and at that time and at that place who didn't get saved? And the difference is the same thing that Paul points out here. It's not so much that I know God. I mean, I can tell you today that I know... Um, I don't know, think of some billionaire or politician or president, and I could say I know them, and it may or may not be true. I may just simply know about them. But the key would be if that famous person, famous athlete, famous musician, uh, whatever, politician might come, and they come to church one day and they say, I'm here to see my good friend, Greg Keenan. Then everybody's jaw would drop open because they know me. That's the way it is with God. A lot of people claim to know God and most of them don't. But the amazing thing is that God knows us. That's where we get our credibility. Again, both things are true, but the fact that God knows you is the major teaching of scripture. And uh, that is something that really gives it powerful power. And that's what gives you assurance. So the relationship that believers have with God, it's a two-way street. I know him, he knows me. I love him, he loves me. And then when we look and we see why, I know him because he knew me, and I love him because he loved me first. That's very clear in the Bible. So we come to know him, and he knows us. And this is what Jesus spoke of in Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Okay? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, I mean, they know about him, they use the right term, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. There's the, there's the key. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, look at this, I never knew you. You knew about me, but I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. They didn't follow the will of God. They did what they wanted to do. And they just had Jesus in their life for what he could do for them. And they really didn't care. They were fakes, in other words. Now, the word know, when it says, I never knew you, it's more than just kind of being acquainted or knowing of someone. I may see enough pictures of uh, President Biden that if I ran into him at Walmart, let's say that'd be a laugh, wouldn't it? I ran into him and might say, hey, I know you, you're the president, but that doesn't mean I really know him or that he knows me. The word know here is uh, much deeper than that. It speaks of a close relationship. It is a close, personal, and even an intimate knowledge. For example, in Luke 134, the same word is used when Gabriel is announcing to Mary about the fact that she's going to become pregnant with Christ. Mary says, 
to the angel, how can this be since I do not know a man? Now, are you going to tell me that, you know, I don't know any men. How could this happen? She's not talking about that. She's talking about the fact that she was a virgin. She had not had sexual relations with a man. Now, Paul is not saying here that we have sexual relations with God or anything like that. All that is being stressed here is not the sexual aspect, but the intimacy aspect. When um, a man and a woman, as it says, Adam knew Eve and uh, she conceived, that's talking more about the intimacy and the closeness that they have more than it is the actual act of it. Both are included, but it's, it's much more than that. And so when Jesus said, I never knew you, what he is saying is, I was never closely, intimately uh, related to you. I didn't have a relationship with you, and you didn't really have one with me. It was more of an acquaintance thing than it was really being close. That's what he stresses here. And so Paul says that you, before you knew God, you were sacrificing to demons, right? But now that you know God, and more importantly, he knows you, something has changed, and that's how that took place. Number three, the uh, constant threat for believers is to fall back into legalism. It's just easier to make up a set of rules and make everybody abide by them. And then you look good, they look good, and you can even make yourself look better than them. Like the Pharisee in the temple, I thank you that I'm not as other men are, even this tax collector. Then he began to list all of his goodness, all of his good works. The rich young ruler, he said, good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, why do you call me good? There's none good but God. That should have stopped him in his tracks because that is the truth. No one can measure up to God. No one can perform enough to match what God is and uh, what he has done. I mean, we all fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that's what happens. We slip and drift into legalism and we get into this code. I've noticed some believers, there are certain things that they won't do and most of the time, it's because they don't really care all that much about doing them anyway, but they make it as a rule and they judge you by that. And so you're not as close to God as they are because you do something that they don't do or you haven't done something that they would do. And uh, normally it's something that they would like and something that they would naturally be drawn to or naturally repulsed by anyway. And then they try to make themselves the standard. You know anybody like that? Maybe you've done that. The standard is not you, and the standard is not me. The standard, of course, is Christ, and he reveals that through the Scripture, through the Word of God. So we're not to add to Scripture, we're not to take away from Scripture, and we're not to uh, feel self-righteous or good about ourselves based on what we have added to or taken away from the scripture or judge other people like that. We just have a tendency, like the Galatians, to fall into the trap of a ritualistic check uh, list of things that we do or don't do and then consider ourselves successful in the Christian life. How is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements 
which you desire again to be in bondage. In other words, Paul said, now you may not be going back to the idols, but you're going back to the same thing, something that is weak, something that has nothing to it. It's, it's impoverished. It, it can't add anything to you. And maybe you're not bowing before Zeus, but you were doing in principle the exact same thing by going back into the Judaistic legalism. When it says weak and beggarly, it means weak and impoverished. And it says that the law can expose sin. It can even bring a realization of guilt, but it can't change, it can't cleanse, and it cannot crucify the flesh. It cannot erase sin, and it cannot conquer sin. Why? Because it is, Paul uses this word again, uh, elements, meaning childish, basic, elementary. Little children don't reason things out. They simply... Uh, obey out of fear. You take a two or three, four, five, six-year-old, what do you, well, even a teenager sometimes. You do, and uh, you'll be grounded. I'll take your keys, or I'll take your license away, or something like that. And so then that may restrain somebody, but it's not because they agree with you, it's because they are afraid of the consequences, and that's all that the law ever did. If you don't want to get zapped, if you don't want to be in trouble, if you don't want to have bad things happen to you, then you have to do the right thing. And they didn't do it because they loved the Lord. They didn't do it because their heart and nature had been changed. That only comes by grace through faith. And that's why the promise in, uh, I believe it's Ezekiel, where the Lord said, I'm actually going to take out your stony, dead heart, and I'm going to put in a heart of flesh that is actually going to be able to respond to God. And so um, this all reduces religion to rituals. You'd be surprised, maybe in our own church. How many people don't walk with God, but they wouldn't miss the church anytime the doors are open, they're here. And that's really all it is. It's just a ritual. It's just a set of rules. It's just a set of traditions. It's just what we've always done. It's meaningless creeds. There are lots of churches where they will just stand up and recite the Apostles' Creed, have no idea what it means. The Nicene Creed, have no idea what it means. It's just something that they say. This is the kind of thing that uh, even when they use the Bible, they use it out of context and they don't understand the Bible verses. And so they are a slave and they are a slave to something other than Jesus. We want to be a slave to him. We want to be submissive to him, but legalism will certainly take all that away. Number four, now we find reversal and there's no need to return to Egypt. Do you remember when the children of Israel had been freed by Moses and they're out in the wilderness and they get thirsty and they go, oh, we had so much good water in Egypt. Oh, I wish we'd never left. When they got tired of eating manna, oh boy, back in Egypt, we had so many good things. We had the onions and the garlic and we had the meat and all of that. And they were acting like life was just wonderful and the food was just exceptional. And now Moses has brought us out here just to die and eat all of this garbage. That's ludicrous, isn't it? And that's what Paul is saying here. Why are you going back to what you came out of? Why are you even tempted to go back to what you came out of? And that's exactly what they were doing. They, in a sense, 
were wanting to go back to Egypt. Boy, wasn't Egypt wonderful? Well, it was easier because when you're a slave in Egypt, you don't have to worry about getting up on time because you don't have a choice about when to get up. When you're back in Egypt, you don't have to worry about what you're going to eat because they give you the slop and you just eat it and move on. When you're back in Egypt, you don't have to make decisions about what you're going to do during the day. You do what you're assigned. When you're in Egypt, you don't have to decide what you're going to do on your day off. You don't have one. When you're in Egypt, you don't have to decide how much straw you need for your bricks. Pharaoh is the one who determines that. And you mix it up and you have a quota of what you're going to do. Boy, wasn't it so much easier in Egypt, this stuff of walking in the freedom of Christ, where we have to think, where we have to make decisions, where we have to be led by the Spirit of God, where we have to reason things out and make sure that we're on track. Man, that's just hard. And a lot of people today, they would rather have a ritualistic religion where they have a preacher tell them what's right and what's wrong instead of find it out for themselves in the Word of God. They would rather have somebody tell them, do this and don't do this, rather than somebody to preach principles to them so that they can learn and grow and be led by the Spirit of God. Folks, that's going back to Egypt. That's going back into slavery. That's not the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ. So Paul says in verse 10, you have observed days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid for you, lest I have labored for you in vain. And so these people were kind of enslaved by a calendar. Doesn't really matter what it is if it enslaves you, right? If it's anything other than Jesus, you're a slave to the wrong master. It talks about days. That would be the weekly Sabbath. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. You can observe the Sabbath all you want. Paul did. He was always going in the synagogue and reasoning with them, but he never thought that observing the Sabbath made him righteous or would save him. Paul would observe the Passover. He would go into the temple. He even took a Nazarite vow at one time, but he never thought that made him righteous. He never thought that that made him right with God. He was doing it because it was meaningful to him. Nothing wrong with any of this until it controls you or until you think it has greater meaning and power than it does. Days, the weekly Sabbath, don't get enslaved to that. Months, that's the feast of the new moon that they would do every month. Their calendar was a lunar calendar. The seasons, that means the annual feasts like Passover and the Feast of Tabernacles and Pentecost, those kind of things. And then it said the years. And every seven years they would have a sabbatical year and they would let the land rest and that type of thing rejuvenate. Every 50 years there was the year of Jubilee and they would forgive debts and kind of reset property back to the tribal um, ownership that it had. And Paul said, look, if you think that stuff is going to liberate you and make you right with God, it doesn't because it is powerful. As he said in the previous verses, it's weak, it's impoverished, and it is enslaving. And Paul said, this is the kind of thing that when you get into all of that and think that it means more than it was ever intended to mean, and you do it for the wrong reasons, then what happens? Paul said, everything I preach to you has been in vain because it's taken your eyes off Christ. It's taken your eyes off of uh, the cross. 
And what happens in all of this is it divides earthly life into the sacred and the secular. So if I've been obedient on the sacred days, then I can do whatever I want on the others. Kind of like the person who said, I have my money and 10% belongs to God and 90% belongs to, to me. Absolutely not. 100% belongs to God. When you give 10%, if you do, that's just a 10% reminder that 100% belongs to God. See, that's missing the point of all of this. And that's what the Galatians were doing. And so if they go to worship on the Sabbath, the rest of the week is mine. Nothing could be further from the truth. If I observe Passover, then I'm, I'm off the hook for anything else until Passover comes around again. Nothing could be further from the truth. Every day belongs to the Lord. Every part of our life belongs to the Lord. Every day is a Sabbath day for the believer. And we are worshiping in everything that we do all of our life should be a day of worship. So if I worship on special days and times or places, I gain points with God, people may think. And being devout elevates me way over the less faithful. Think of the Pharisee and the publican in the temple again. And instead of fully trusting in what God has done through Christ, uh, what humans do becomes the dominant issue. So we conclude by just saying this, legalism is enslaving. Obedience liberates and protects. Legalism goes beyond what the Bible teaches when it's done in context and is done out of fear, not out of love. It elevates the flesh and it puts down others. It tries to gain an upper hand and special status with God by human achievement. Legalism looks to performance rather than the cross for its worthiness. And uh, with that being said, I would encourage you to read Romans 14 verses 5 through 10, where Paul talks about this to another set of Gentiles, but he says much the same thing. And these Gentiles, you and me, we probably need to hear that as well because we have the same tendencies. We may do it in different ways, but it's so easy just to fall into a pattern of tradition, of habit, of rule keeping. And then we have the audacity to look down our noses at other people who don't keep the same rules the same way and at the same times that we do. And those things are really not the issue. The issue is Jesus. And are we trusting in him fully and completely and alone? That's what makes believers. And that's why we're justified. So I hope that blesses you. Hope that enhances your understanding. Hope that causes you to pray for other people who are trapped in uh, different kinds of legalism and false religion and hopes it kind of puts up your spiritual antennas so that you know what's real and what's not as we go through this world and you don't get fooled. May the Lord bless you, teachers, and may the Lord bless those of you who are watching this video to keep up with your class. I really appreciate you for doing that. And uh, we'll look forward to seeing how God transforms lives through the teaching of his word this next Sunday. God bless and thanks again.